The Invictus Mind, Episode 30. Hello, this is Mike Corbell. Each and every person is a sovereign individual, born with a spark of divinity, with unique and unlimited potential. But every one of us will face unique challenges, obstacles, or roadblocks. There are systems in this world that may be built against our own best interests. Governments use force to coerce and compel us. Sometimes we build systems in our very own head. In each episode, we will look at these systems, these roadblocks, the things that prevent us from reaching our true potential. We will discuss how to break free and regain our sovereignty, how we can become the master of our fate and the captain of our soul. Hello everyone, this is your host, Mike Corbell. We live in a time where binary thinking is the norm, where things discussed fall into an either-or paradigm. It's left versus right, Republican versus Democrat, believers versus non-believers. And these people with these paradigms look at the world through the eyes of what is good and what is evil. But life is not just black and white, no pun intended, but several shades of gray. In today's show, we will be looking into ways to challenge these paradigms, to discover the nuances that exist inside important issues that are discussed in various circles. We first will look at modern-day Christianity and whether there actually exists a separation of church and state, another binary paradigm. Are politics and religion actually mutually exclusive? From there, we will discuss a project that my guest is developing, one that teaches the Socratic method and how to develop critical thinking skills needed to break free of the either-or paradigm. We will also touch on the study of the individualism of both men and women who independently have separate gifts, talents, and skills needed for a healthy society. Finally, we discuss what's normally a very divisive issue, abortion, and how the binary paradigm of the pro-choice versus pro-life movements are actually compromising the liberty for both the expectant mother and her fetus. Is it possible to think out of the box and acknowledge that the free market and a culture of more liberty instead of less could be the best way to solve life's important issues? I think so, and I think my guest believes that as well. So let's get started. Well, hello. On the show today is a woman who has made a name for herself as an independent researcher. She is a student of philosophy, reformed theology, and socio-political thought. She is a contributing writer for the Libertarian Christian Institute, whose mission is to provide a central set of tenets that help people make a connection between the values taught in Christianity and in libertarianism. Along with her work there, my guest has, has her own website, which can be found at MereLiberty.com. She is a host of two podcasts entitled Flashes of Liberty and Dare to Think. In addition to that, she is a homeschool mother of three children. I'd like to welcome Miss Carrie Baldwin. coming on my show today yeah well thank you for inviting me this is this is very exciting you're out of uh, new mexico correct yeah i uh i'm born and raised in new mexico so yeah i've driven through albuquerque on my way to california and las vegas a few times so there you go yeah lots of people say they've driven through here <laughs> but of course because there's there's i-40 which runs along uh route 66 
Well, um, it, re- it reminds me of Bugs Bunny. I should have made that left turn at Albuquerque, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Albuquerque is great. I love it, except for the politics. But, you know, there's, there's always that. Well, I think that's the challenge we have in most of the states in this great country, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so. Definitely. Cherry, uh, I wanted to invite you on because uh, I've actually recently discovered your name uh, just through some of the other podcasts I've listened to, most recently through the Godarchy podcast with uh, Michael Meharry. Oh, okay. Very good. Yeah, that was a, that was a fun interview. Yeah, I interviewed Michael uh, some time back, and then after listening to his show, I, I heard the show that you were on, and I had to say, this woman is really intriguing and interesting. I, I got to get to know who she is. So I've been checking oh, you good. out a little bit and, uh, and following you on Facebook. So Very good. Well, I'm glad you reached out. Well, you know, one of the things I wanted to uh, uh, do with, I, I, I do with most of my guests is really just kind of get to know them. I, I'm a new podcaster, so not a lot of people get to know who I am. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, as I'm trying to build my network and, and meet interesting people such as yourself, I just, I wanted to just get to know a little bit about who Carrie is and, and some of the great work you're doing. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so you're the third prominent female libertarian I've had on the podcast here. Oh, very good. Which other ones have you had? I've uh, spoken to uh, Sherry Voluntary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, uh, I haven't published it yet, but uh, Raylene Lightheart. Oh, very good. Yeah. I follow Raylene on Facebook. And all three of you are homeschooling mothers, so. Oh, uh, that's that's awesome. <laughs> I gotta I to jump on that uh, on that train right there. So, not as a homeschooling mother, but just homeschooling in general. Yeah, right, right. Anyway, uh, the reason why I asked you on is I was really intrigued by uh, the conversation you had uh, on Godarchy, uh, mm-hmm. based on the the interview you did with uh, with Walter Block. Yes. I thought that your take on the abortion issue was. Uh, was revolutionary and, and very unique. And I don't want to only pigeonhole this into about abortion, but I, I, want to, I really kind of want to know a, a little bit about, more about your story and, and uh, why libertarianism is so important to you. Well, you know, that's a great question. Um, I actually, you know, I grew up in a very Republican home uh, um, and didn't become a libertarian into, until 2008. Um, 2008 was really the first year that I had an opportunity to participate in um, or vote in rather a presidential primary. And uh, so that was, uh, that was interesting to me because I was like, that, that primary had, gosh, what, 15, 18 candidates in it or something like that. It was crazy. And I thought, how the heck do you choose a presidential candidate. And so, you know, I thought, well, I suppose I should read up on the Constitution and what, what it says the job of the executive branch is. Um, and so it, very quickly, I narrowed it down to uh, Ron Paul being the only candidate, candidate up there who was actually uh, adhering to the Constitution in any sort of fashion. And um, I'm, uh, as a side note, I'm also a veteran of the U.S. Air Force. And so the, the one thing that I had uh, a hard time grabbing a hold of when it came to Ron Paul was his foreign policy, uh, which was, at least for a time, I think, uh, sort of the hang up from a lot of conservative Republicans, you know, when it came to coming over to the libertarian side. Um, but, uh, you know, eventually I saw the light with that and I uh, started studying libertarianism. The very first book, actually, that I read uh, was written by Michael Bednarik, who uh, was a libertarian presidential candidate, I believe, in, what was it, 84? Um, but he wrote a book called Good to be King. Yeah, and I just actually finished reading that book myself. It's been on my shelf for some time, so. It, it's a great book. Um <laughs> You know, his. Uh, I think the the thing that stuck out to me so much was uh, from that book was what he talked about with the freedom to travel and what drive, driver's licenses really are. And I was like, whoa! I had never considered that a license is you know a permission from the state to you know do something that you're you should be otherwise free to do. Um. So, at any rate, yeah. I you know I. I started studying libertarian philosophy um, and 
uh, was also getting into Reformed theology at the time. It was completely unrelated. Um, eventually, I started my own blog, which was in 2012. Um, and that was uh, a bit of an experiment for a while. I didn't know which, quite which direction to take that in. Um, but yeah, I eventually became a libertarian anarchist in uh, late 2000. 16. Um, and sort of the rest is history. I've been studying Rothbard and Mises and, and all those great guys uh, ever since. And, you know, as far as the abortion debate is concerned, that was that's an interesting story because I grew up in the pro-life movement. Um, I was actually uh, homeschooled here in New Mexico before it was legalized. Um, and so my parents were in, uh, involved in the pro-life movement here, and I remember doing all kinds of, uh, you know, um, advocacy sort of activities with those groups. And um, originally, when I went off to college uh, way back in 2000, um, I wanted to double major in medical lab science and political science. I wanted to uh, become a genetic research researcher and study uh, cord blood stem cells as an ethical alternative to embryonic stem cells. And um, that, that plan sort of fell through, but it's always been sort of uh, an issue in, in my mind. And so when I started learning about the libertarian views of, of self-ownership and the non-aggression principle, you know, I started applying those things to the abortion issue and I thought, hmm, uh, you know, both sides have some things right and both sides have some things wrong. And as long as we're in this sort of gridlock situation, we're not going to make any progress on it. So, you know, what if there's a libertarian take on abortion that's, that's different from both? And so that's, that's how that happened. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think there's a more divisive uh, issue than abortion. Uh, for every political party and every ideology that's out there. Well, I'll tell you what. I think there is one issue that is that is going to be rivaling it, and that's the issue of vaccinations. But it's probably a topic for another podcast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so there are going to be two divisive issues. So, yeah. It's interesting how you, uh, you mentioned your story about the discovering Ron Paul. Dr. Ron Paul is very influential, as many people obviously already know. Mm -hmm. And uh, that you, you come from a background being in the United States Air Force. Yep. Were, were you in the Air Force for four years, or did you do uh, more time in it? Oh, no. I actually got out um, early because I was pregnant. Um, I got out when I was eight months pregnant. They allow women who get pregnant the option to get out with an honorable discharge. Originally, I had planned on staying in. Um, you know, when I, when I initially found out I was pregnant, I thought, I'm just going to stay in. I worked in the hospital. Um, and uh, so at any rate, at about eight months um, pregnant, I realized that uh, you know, I may have signed, I may have signed that paperwork and, and turned my life over to the United States government, but my uh, unborn son surely didn't. And so I opted to get out early um, and uh, came back to New Mexico. I'm actually, uh, in hindsight, very grateful that I got out early because if I had stayed in, I would have been deployed when he was six months old. Um, and so, yeah, I've got I don't really play up the uh, the the veteran side of my history because it was pretty short. It was not a combat vet. Worked in the hospital, um, and so I didn't do a lot of the things that that many of the vets did. But I do have a perspective on it, and I have um, family members who were combat vets, and uh, so yeah. Okay, well, that's interesting. I never served myself. My brother was in the U.S. Navy. Yeah, okay. He discovered his road to libertarianism while serving, and uh, domino effect. That's how I kind of discovered myself. Uh, he introduced me to Ron Paul, and, and, yeah. and it's a long story from there. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, you, uh, you went to school. You said in uh, in Arizona, right? Arizona State University. You got a bachelor's degree in philosophy. Yeah. So I did all my work um, online, but yeah, I got my my bachelor's of arts from from uh, Arizona State. Well, what I really like is uh, I've been checking out your website, MereLiberty.com. And uh, this is not a Christian show, but uh, I am a believer. 
And okay. so I, wel- I welcome all ideologies. And I, and I really like uh, your, your perspective on mm-hmm. uh, um, applied philosophy, uh, you know, and ethics and, and, and how you actually look at philosophy from the practical purpose of finding liberty. And then, mm-hmm. and then cross, crossing that with, uh, with the tenets of Christianity. Yes. I think that uh, um, I told my, my dad this one time, and he's uh, asking me what my political philosophy was. I said, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian anarchist. He's like, That's, uh, that means the same thing, doesn't it? <laughs> I, like, I guess it kind of does. <laughs> yeah, you would, you know, I, I, some people don't think that. But um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting because uh, as, as a Christian, uh, we have, you know, scripture has something to say about civil governance and, and how we are supposed to interact with authority figures and things like that. And there are very mixed messages, even um, I would say wrong teachings when it when it comes to a Christian view of the state, and uh, that was, I guess, what was interesting about it was my my journey towards Reformed theology uh, was ran sort of parallel towards or parallel with my journey towards libertarianism, and then at one point I realized they intersected, and. Uh, once I saw that intersection, it was like, you, you can't untie it. Um, so at any rate, it's really interesting to write from both perspectives because most people think that uh, politics and religion are completely mutually exclusive. And so, you know, teaching my, teaching my readers that I talk about both has been, um, has been an interesting endeavor. But uh, the people who are usually attracted to my website are people who are sort of tired of the same old rhetoric and, uh, you know, want to hear other perspectives. And so they're sort of, uh, they're curious in, in that way. It's interesting because when you, when you study the history of Christianity mm-hmm. and you understand that uh, there was at one point in time a, a separation of, I'll call it church and state, right? That was the idea. But now it seems that like we have uh, this American version of Christianity that's yeah. uh, intertwined everything, right? Yeah. And, uh, and I always want to go back to the early Christians uh, and, you know, in, in the 100, 200 AD and, and how they were completely independent. And, and they were, they were really like the outcasts of society, even though they, uh, they didn't, uh, you know, they wanted to separate themselves from, from the state. Is there a difference, do you think, between American Christianity and Christianity worldwide? Oh, Yeah. Well, you know, American Christianity probably is what you might think of as um, sort of prosperity gospel sort of stuff, maybe some fundamentalism, some, uh, it's very pietistic um, on both the liberal and the conservative side. Uh, we tend to think of the, the the pietism as being solely on the conservative side, but liberals are have their own brand of of pietism, which is just you know uh, using the state to to serve the poor and and provide social justice and things like that. Um, what's interesting, I think, about uh, sort of the history of church and state throughout throughout church history is that it really became untied with the protestant reformation i mean the the first person to really advocate religious liberty was martin luther himself and once you have a case for religious liberty then you have a case for all kinds of other separations between uh between the role of the church and the role of the state which had been intertwined you know, uh, since Constantine. Um, so, you know, Reformed theology, especially the Presbyterian side of Reformed theology, is, uh, has many, many thinkers in it who, uh, who, separated, um, who separated out the, the sphere of the church and the sphere of the state and, and showed that the authority in both of those spheres and other spheres are are necessarily limited, um, even though they do interact. Um, so I did find that Reformed theology had a place for a more 
libertarian or liberty-oriented view of society and life. It's funny because most of American culture has been developed by Protestantism. 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 Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those difficult English language words. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, the Protestants obviously came from the Puritans and that started in New England and America. Tell me a little bit about Reformed theology. How is that, how is that different? Because I know that uh, there's, a, there's a, a trend for people to, to always spread their message, but uh, they seem to not be able to accept other types of uh, messages that are out there. Well, Reformed, the, the term Reformed comes from uh, the Reformation, and there were, def- there were definitely different movements in the Reformation. It started with, with Martin Luther and the Lutheran Church, uh, which was subsequently formed. Uh, then you had uh, Zwingli and Calvin and, um, oh, some of the other names are not coming to mind. But at any rate, you had basically divisions based on what their view of church polity or church government was supposed to be. And um, so there's, so the, the moniker uh, Reformed Theology is, more of an umbrella term, which includes several different, you know, denomination types. Uh, usually you can identify uh, Reformed believers by way of confession. So we, uh, there are various confessions throughout um, Protestant history. So you have the Westminster Confession, you have the Augsburg Confession, if you want to include the Lutheran Church under that umbrella. Uh, so Augsburg, Westminster, uh, the Belgic Confession, Second Helvetic, uh, and there's some there's some others. Um, generally speaking, all of those confessions uh, are very very similar to one another, and so the divisions between them um, are really on either secondary issues or the or the defense of the primary issues. So, like the Augsburg Confession, for example, is. Uh, on, on the surface is something that a Calvinist might agree with, but when it comes to what they call the apology for the Augsburg or the defense of uh, the Augsburg, that's where nuances start to get drawn out. Um, but as far as, you know, the Puritans are concerned, there were a lot of different kinds of Puritans as well, even, um, you know, Baptist Puritans and, and more Arminian-style Puritans. Um, that probably wouldn't fall under the the reformed heading. Um, But I do know that religious liberty in America was started by a man, I believe his name was Roger Williams in Rhode Island. And that became the first state to really have um, genuine religious liberty. Um, And uh, so that sort of at least sparked that that movement um, in America. Interesting. So tell me a little something about the Christian uh, Libertarian Institute. Because uh, looking at a website, it looks like there are people from different backgrounds. And uh, uh, what you guys are trying to do is, is, is find commonality between all the different types of faiths and denominations, but make sure it is promoted towards uh, religious liberty and, and freedom in general, correct? Right. So the Libertarian Christian Institute is much more ecumenical. Um, basically, our common ground is on the ancient creeds, so the Nicene, the Athanasian, and uh, the Apostles' Creed. Okay. Um, and so you do have, uh, you definitely have Christians from other backgrounds um, who are contributing there. I believe I'm, well, I'm either, I think I'm one of the only Reformed people that's uh, that's on there. But the idea is, is that uh, we believe that libertarianism is the best expression of Christian political thought. And so we talk about libertarianism in Christian terms. Uh, we might talk about Christianity in libertarian terms, but we, we talk about where those, those two things intersect, um, how you can be a libertarian sort of regardless of your particular Christian confession. Um, and we also challenge other Christians who, you know, take a more statist approach to politics and say, mm, maybe that's not actually in line with, with Christian theology. 
Um, so, you know, our aim is definitely to hold first to, uh, to the uh, ancient Christian doctrines as, as closely as we, as we can. There's, of course, some differences. Um, and then to express our political thought from, from that point. You've, uh, you've been affiliated with that organization for a little while. You're one of the main writers uh, in that website. Uh, yeah, let's see. I started writing for them in, uh, I think it was 2018. So I've been with them for a couple of years. Um, yeah. So and right now we are working on uh, publishing a book called uh, 100 Short Answers to Tough Questions for, for Christian Libertarians or something like that. I think the title's still in, in the works. But um, basically it's a, it's a book about, um, you know, 100 questions that, that we commonly receive from people about uh, how Christian faith and libertarianism, you know, plays together. So we, uh, we talk about abortion, we talk about drugs, we talk about the environment, we talk about Romans 13 and, and how we can <laughs> adhere to Romans 13 and, and be libertarian or even anarchist and that sort of thing. So, Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Romans 13 because that seems to be the prominent question. There's, there's two contradicting um, thoughts when you, when you read scriptures. I think the first one is, uh, is it Samuel 8 that talks about having no king? Mm-hmm. And of course, Romans 13 is Paul saying, well, we need to respect our government. And it's, they, 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 they don't make sense if you just read them back to back, but you got to understand the, the time of the authors and, and what they've been dealing with and things of that nature. So. Yeah, well, um, you know, Romans 13 is, is a very valuable passage um, that's sort of, I mean, if we take it to mean that you're just supposed to obey government no matter what they say, that's actually taking Romans 13 out of context, but most people do that. Um, I actually have a page on my website with a ton of information about Romans 13 and a, in a more detailed explanation of um, a reformed, more, really more of a reformed anarchist view of Romans 13, um, which is just mereliberty.com slash Romans 13. You can find all of uh, just a bunch of information there, um, but really, when you're when you're reading it in in context of you know Romans 12 and Romans 14, Romans 13 is talking about more of the way civil governance is supposed to work, not you know, not the way the state operates, um, and so we would make a distinction between civil governance as a service provided by uh, society, um, and then the state, which is a monopoly on civil governance. And so we make a distinction between those two things. We say Romans 13 is, is talking more about uh, civil governance and the way civil governance is supposed to operate rather than just abject obedience and blind obedience to the state. Yeah, I think it's important to understand that uh, you can't take things out of context uh, particularly when you're, uh, you're reading scriptures. I think a lot of people have a tendency to use one or two verses and say, well, this is what this means. <laughs> and you're like, well, mm-hmm. why don't you read the verses around that? Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, one thing that I really appreciate about uh, the Presbyterian uh, thinkers on a lot of these uh, topics when it comes to liberty, the Presbyterian thinkers were, were talking about this uh, centuries ago and mm-hmm. what, the, what Romans 13 meant and w- what the proper role of the state was. And, um, and you know, that was back in the uh, 16, 17, 1800s. So this isn't anything new. Um, and it's not... Uh, it's it's not a fad. It's not something that goes against Christian orthodoxy. We would actually say it's in line with Christian orthodoxy, and so it's not even it's not even a novel view of scripture. It's actually a very old view of scripture. Uh, there's another book um, written by a Lutheran theologian who lived at the time of Hitler, named uh, his name was Oscar Kuhlman. He wrote a book called The State in the New Testament, and um, you know, he's talking about what the biblical relationship between church and state is. And so he talks about how there's a constant tension between the church and the state because uh, the state is constantly trying to intervene in the, in the life of, of the church and Christians and that sort of thing. Um, 
so at any rate, there's, there's plenty of theology out there that supports uh, this notion that Romans 13 and these other passages that, that talk about, you know, praying for and being obedient to, to the civil authorities, that, um, you know, it's not abject blind obedience to a monopoly state. Like that's just the, the monopoly state is just one iteration of what civil governance could be. And we're arguing that it's the wrong way to, to administer civil governance. Very interesting. So on your website, uh, you talk about uh, some of the things that uh, you're trying to do. And uh, mm-hmm. what, I really, what I really like when uh, you answer my question, what is freedom? You said freedom is uh, through a mindset that we are imprisoned by our fears, our insecurities, our misconceptions about the world. And uh, you want to, uh, you, you make it in a mission for you to change the paradigms the way people think about things in the world. Mm-hmm. Right? Tell me a little yeah. about that. What, what are the paradigms? Because uh, you mentioned that there's a couple different types of paradigms. There's two different people, people who are stuck in the left-right paradigm and people who, don't, who know that there is something outside of that, but they don't know how to get there. Right. So, you know, when I, when I finally figured out what I wanted Mere Liberty to be about, I realized that I had already gone through, in many ways, gone through this process of, of challenging what I call the left-right paradigm. And, you know, we know that as the liberal versus conservative, Republican versus Democrat um, sort, of, sort of way of thinking, it's, it's either or. Either you are, you know, uh, for the military, and so you have to support the troops no matter what, or you're, uh, you know, completely against any sort of um, use of violence, even in self-defense. Like, there's no room for, for nuance. And so that creates this polarization that we are seeing um, even now with, you know, these protests and race riots that are going on, it is becoming so polarized. It's, you know, you're either with us or against us. And if, and if, if there's any discussion of nuance, then you must be fill in the blank. Um, so, you know, what I try and do with Mere Liberty is to, talk about these really tough issues from different angles and, uh, you know, really evaluate both sides of an issue and then discuss how, you know, there might be a third or fourth or fifth perspective. Um, and so, yeah, I have, I have people, uh, people who react to my stuff who are definitely caught up in the left-right paradigm and so they don't, they get frustrated with me because they try and, you know, they'll, they'll hear me on one issue and sort of paint me in a box. Um, and then they'll hear me on another issue and it's like coming out of uh, left field, no pun intended. But the, the people who really enjoy reading my stuff are the people who are saying, okay, I know this left-right paradigm is, is a false choice, but what else is there? And of course, they're asking that question because those questions aren't typically asked. And so I try to, you know, I try to ask those questions and, and at least provide alternative perspectives and encourage people to, to think about it themselves. Yeah, what's interesting because uh, we do have this duopoly, right? You're, you're either a red or a blue. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a libertarian, you know that when you're on social media, when you're in discussion, if, you, uh, if you're doing your job right as a libertarian, you're going to be upsetting the liberals and upsetting the conservatives at the same time. Yep. Yep. But then, then, of course, you want to mix uh, your theology involved in that, so you have the believers and the non-believers. So right there, you have four different perspectives. Well, and not only that, you do have a left-right paradigm in the church. You do have liberals and conservatives. Um, and the conservatives, I actually consider more fundamentalist. Um, in fact, um, the uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church was born out of trying to resist and, and challenge that left-right paradigm. Uh, the founder, his name was Jay Gresham Machen, um, he resisted both a liberal view of the gospel and a fundamentalist view of the gospel. And... Um, so you still get that left-right paradigm even even within the church. Um, you know, it's, uh, I mean, you do have the, the dichotomy between believers and non-believers, but 
I think even a lot of the problems that we're experiencing in the church today uh, are, are directly associated with a false left-right paradigm in the church. Right. And so you, uh, you were talking about, uh, are you developing a course or uh, is it done already? A 15 week course that's uh, that challenges these, uh, these paradigms that you can talk about going through this accredited method. Yeah. So I just uh, launched uh, what I'm calling Liberty seminar and it is a 15 week Socratic seminar course. Um, I'm holding it for uh, middle schoolers, high schoolers and adults. So there's actually three different um, seminars. They're divided by age um, and, you know, when the Socratic method is, it's, it's a very old method, it obviously it goes back to Socrates. And um, the way that Socrates would teach people is just by asking them open-ended questions. And um, it was so effective at getting people to think about what it was that they believed and what the truth was and challenging their own paradigms. Uh, that uh, Socrates was actually uh, put to death for, um, uh, what was it? Something about, uh, it was something about the youth. I forget the term that they used. Oh, corrupting the youth, because uh, he was just getting them to think. And, uh, you know, it might be anything from, from politics to, to challenging the, uh, the ancient pagan pa- uh, pantheon. So um, at any rate, Socratic method is, is really just a method of asking open-ended questions of yourself and of your peers and of the information that you come in contact with, learning how to evaluate it, be critical of it, um, and, and not maliciously critical, like actually looking for that nuance and, and looking more for answers instead of just being triggered by, you know, things that may initially sound offensive. And um, so, yeah, I've started that. And uh, so far we, I have some, I have the middle school class going on and I have the adult class going on. We'll start it up again in the fall as well. Um, But it's just, it's, it's a really wonderful tool that I've used even with my own kids in, in homeschooling for uh, developing critical thinking and developing intellectual confidence and also self-awareness and self-evaluation. What would be uh, like an example of uh, some of the questions you might pose uh, in this class? Obviously, in 15-week class, there's going to be lots of things you cover. How, how, how do you get people to, to come up with that question? Do you use a Socratic method, right? You, you're, asking, you're telling them to ask the question. How, how would you lead them to that? So my job is, is as a coach or a guide. So um, usually when you do a class, you have, uh, you have teachers and or you have a teacher and several students. And usually what happens is the teacher lectures the class and the class is expected to be able to, uh, you know, basically regurgitate that information in order to prove that they're, they've got some memory recall. So what I do is I actually take... Um, we'll take readings or videos or something to talk about. Um, And uh, I will guide the discussion by, by asking some open-ended questions. So our first lesson is actually, let's see. Uh, The, the first lesson for the adult class is called the mark of an educated mind. And so we're reading an excerpt from Mortimer Adler's book, How to Read a Book, and discussing, um, discussing the difference between learning by instruction and learning by discovery. And so part of those, part of the questions that I'll be asking are things like, you know, what does it mean to be educated? Is it... Um, you know, and then we'll discuss what, what that actually means. Is it simple memory recall or is it the, the ability to actually articulate what you've just learned in your own words? Like what is, what's the connection between memory recall versus the ability to articulate an idea? Um, and those are two very, very different things. I mean, you have a lot of people who uh, become libertarian because they hear the ideas of liberty and that makes sense to them. But ask them to 
turn around and articulate those views and they can't. And so there's, there's a question about whether they've actually learned what those, those libertarian principles are. And so that's, that's one thing that we're talking about in, in the first lesson. And that's the, the jumping off point for the remaining lessons so that, um, you know, in those remaining lessons, the idea is, is to uh, discover through asking questions and they can be, you know, asking questions of anything. Where did we get this idea from? Why could that be the case? Uh, what's the counter argument to that? What's a counter example to that? Um, what's analogous to that example? What's disanalogous to that example? And really examining an idea from every possible angle. And as you do that, you're, um, you're actually committing that to your long-term memory. You're building pathways in your brain, uh, which are really not just taking in the information, but learning it in a way that you can go off and, and apply it in your real life and your, you know, your everyday life. Yeah. I, I think that's a, uh, that's a great way to learn it. Uh, as you were saying that, I was thinking about uh, some of the libertarians that I encounter and a, a catchy uh, uh, phrase that we always say is taxation is theft, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But if you can say that, sure, you might get some people interested in what you have to say, but if you can't explain what that means, then most people are going to reject that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, I think it's very easy to get caught up in the fact that in those, those catchphrases, which are useful. I mean, they, they are useful and they have their place, but you know, like a lot of people can't put that into an, uh, into application. Like, you know, when you, the, the, uh, autonomous zone that got created in what was it? Seattle. Um, and you had these Antifa guys who were going around to businesses demanding, uh, demanding payment for their services since they had kicked the cops out of those, those blocks. And, uh, you know, I saw many conservatives and libertarian leaning types going, this is crazy. That's extortion. And it's like, that's taxation. <laughs> like, you know, that's like, think about, let's think about this. Um, so, uh, so yeah, at any rate, what, what's useful about the Socratic method is being able to process that information in such a way that you can apply it and then see it in life. And that is how you really challenge those paradigms. Yeah, it's interesting. On your website, you talk about three different levels of understanding. Uh, you talk about the portal, the parlor, and the laboratory. Those are categories that I have on my website, and I just came up with, with those, those names. But actually, the three levels of, of learning are based on a classical model of education. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, when, when I'm going to forget the, the levels, I always get them mixed up. Um, at any rate, in the first stage, you're just learning the facts, right? You're just learning what is this? Like mm -hmm. you'll see, I'll, I've got articles there. What is libertarianism? What is authoritarianism? What is this? What is that? And then the, the second stage is um, practicing the logic of that. It's, it's saying, okay, if this is the definite, if this is the fact of authoritarianism, then you know, what does that look like in real life? It's, it's illustrating the logic. And then the third level is really, uh, is taking those ideas and applying it to, to various things. So that's the, the deeper level thinking. Um, so yeah, that's, those articles are, are divided up essentially according to the, the uh, classical model of, of three levels of education. Okay. I wasn't sure if that was uh, intertwined with uh, your Socratic method classes or not, but uh, it, it seemed to be <laughs> go <going> nicely. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I could see that, you know, and we do, uh, the middle schoolers are, are going to be talking more about, you know, basic things, uh, whereas the, the adults are going to be talking uh, a little bit more in depth and doing some practical, some practical okay. stuff. So yeah, there's a little bit of that in it, but each, each grade level is really getting all three levels of, of education as well. So. One of the things that you mentioned was really important to you was uh, uh, this idea of uh, identity, uh, especially among women. Yes. Uh, and so 
as a woman yourself, what uh, can you expand on that? To, what, what is it that uh, is uh, very important to you? Well, you know, I had mentioned earlier that I felt like the uh, the left right paradigm exists in the church, um, and that's actually manifest in debates over whether uh, you know women can be pastors or. Uh, should be learning theology or should just be wives and mothers or, you know, that sort of thing. And there's, there's some very patriarchal views of, of women. And then there's very egalitarian views of women and both sides really challenge what it means to be a woman. I mean, they also challenge what it means to be a man, but I think I think that there's a heavier emphasis placed on women. And a lot of that comes down to our, our own personal identity. And um, that's been a conversation, uh, particularly in the reformed world uh, over the past uh, year in particular. Um, and of course, you know, some of the, some of the triggering topics related to that are gender, gender identity and sexual identity and things like that. And, you know, I, I do take more of a quote-unquote conservative approach, um, although I challenge the uh, what's known as the complementarian view of that. Um, but what I've found personally is that the principles of freedom, um, just self-ownership and non-aggression and the free market, lend themselves quite well to... Um, to a theologically sound view of women, but both sides are, are getting wrapped up in a, in a lot of your polarized topics. Um, so at any rate, you know, there's, there is more of that intersection between libertarianism and reformed theology there. Um, but identity is, is really at the, at the heart of a lot of that. And um, so, uh, so yeah, that's, that's more of a, a long-term thing that I've, that I've been working on and trying to develop. It's interesting because when you study the scriptures, uh, you, you do see a lot of uh, references that might lead to uh, the patriarchy, right? Mm -hmm. But there are some very prominent women in the scriptures that who, who without which, to, you know, <laughs> a lot of things wouldn't get done. Right. And yeah. Yeah. It, what I think is funny is because uh, somewhere, and I don't know what, what passage it is, but it says that the man is ahead, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm always thinking, I heard it, that the man is the head, but the woman is the neck, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so maybe that's more egalitarian. I don't know what, what you would call that, but, uh, uh, you know, women are very important. And, and many faiths and many many just cultures kind of uh, don't even accept that, don't even look at that. Yeah. You know, the egalitarian view, and I get, I get a lot of pushback from, because basically I tell people I'm neither complementarian nor egalitarian. And, you know, it's, it's just like I'm neither Democrat nor Republican. Um, and it's really hard for people to, to get their head wrapped around the idea that you could possibly be something that's not either or. But, uh, you know, I'm philosophically trained. And so uh, egalitarianism is, to me, something that is not simply about gender equality, which a lot of people uh, try to chalk it up as, but it's about sameness. Um, and that sameness can be expressed in a number of ways um, from, you know, the more extreme position of, of, for all practical purposes, erasing gender entirely, um, to just giving women the same quote unquote opportunities within the church that they would have uh, elsewhere. And um, I don't take, I, I reject that idea that everything is, is supposed to be the same or that we have to flatten those things out. Um, I think Murray Rothbard wrote a, an article about egalitarianism unrelated to the church issue but it really talks about, um, you know, the philosophical side of egalitarianism and why differences are ne necessary and why inequalities are necessary and actually good and, and that sort of thing. But of course, we're talking about, I mean, what does inequality mean, right? Uh, inequality has, has been used as a way of... Uh, sort of painting a, a hierarchical differentiation that's unjust and that's not 
you know, that's not the way that true inequality works. It means I have uh, skills and talents that you don't have, and that makes us unequal in that regard. But that's also what uh, makes, you know, a, a community uh, relationship necessary because we have to work together because we are all in unequal. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's um, the complementary and egalitarian debate is, is unfortunately a nasty one. And it's a lot of talking past one another, a lot of getting triggered over words and, and ideologies and being afraid of, you know, motivations and things like that. And that's just, you know, that creates polar polarization. So yeah, I'm challenging those paradigms too. Um, cause it's important. Right. Exactly. So it's, uh, it's interesting because outside of the obvious differences between a man and a woman, you know, right. women can give birth. And mm-hmm. it's interesting how that was the very last thing that God created was, was, was woman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so every faith is a little bit different, but, uh, you know, my faith background will teach that uh, men have the priesthood and women can give childbirth. So they're both, they complement each other, but they both have different roles, right? They both have mm. different, uh, different um, you call them, you know, different skills and talents, and we call them gifts in our, in our faith. And it's, uh, they, uh, <laughs> everybody has, to, has their role, has their part, right, to, to make an interesting society. Right, Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the debate that you had with Walter Block. Now sure. I didn't get to I didn't get to hear that debate, but I heard your perspective on again mm-hmm. that it, it really I was trying to explain it to my wife because she didn't get a chance to hear it, uh-huh. and I was like, okay, this is an interesting perspective because some people this is a very polarizing issue. Some people are staunchly pro-life, and others are, are pro-choice, or I like to say pro-abortion. But your perspective was, you know, you have to consider the the nuances in between that. Mm-hmm. The, the women who are going through an abortion, you can't just label them as evil or as bad or, but because they are human beings, they have rights, right. they have emotions, they have uh, thoughts and feelings. And uh, I, I thought your perspective on that was, it was really interesting because it, it takes all those factors into consideration. Yeah. My view is, um, I, I believe it's, it's, a it's, it can be legitimately said to be a uniquely libertarian view. Um, But essentially what I'm, what I'm saying is, is that both sides have compromised rights. Uh, The pro-choice side compromises um, the rights of the fetus in favor of the woman and the pro-life side compromises the rights of the woman in favor of the fetus. And so basically both sides have put, um, have put, rights with regards to women and their offspring at odds. And I don't think that either of those two scenarios are, are, well, correct for one, but they aren't sustainable. Um, And, you know, it leads on on the one hand, on the pro-choice side of things, it leads us to these false conclusions that women have um, a a right and a power to determine who will be born, who has a right to be born. Um, And if that side is true, then our rights aren't actually inherent in our humanity because we're humans from the moment of conception. We're, we're unique, new, unique living humans from the moment of conception. That's scientifically uh, the case. It doesn't, doesn't require any sort of, Uh, religious perspective to come to that conclusion. Um, On the other hand, on the, on the pro-life side, you really do have a situation where it's like the only, the only person that matters in a crisis pregnancy situation is the fetus. And it's like, no, if, if you want that fetus to be taken care of, if you want that unborn baby to, to live and thrive, then you need to understand the, the importance of, of the woman. And then, of course, um, there are concerns about uh, enforcement. So, you know, I would say abortion should not be legal. However, we have an authoritarian government uh, who uh, enforces laws in a very unjust way, very draconian way, in fact, one thing that I'd like to write about that I haven't had a chance to write about is the um, 
the analogous situation between this coronavirus thing and and having a fetus inside you because both are both are uh, objects of state interest and both are something that you can't see um, but the state has an interest in them and if you have an authoritarian enforcement of um, of abortion laws, um, you can you can have a very draconian view of uh, of how to treat women because you have to get through the woman to get to the fetus, uh, and it's just like this coronavirus thing. You have to get through the individual to get to that virus, and suddenly, um, you know, suddenly the the uh, since the object of in, of interest of state's interest is inside a person's body, it's like. We have a right to invade your body. And that's, that's a conversation we need to have is, does the government have a right to invade our body? Uh, do they have, and this is where the vaccine thing comes up. So, you know, I, I, I absolutely do not support an authoritarian um, enforcement of abortion laws because I think that especially in a situation where uh, you have people who do not see the rights of the woman as being uh, just as important as the rights of the fetus. There's there's too many problems that can that can arise from that. Um, and so, um, you know, my, but we can't just we can't just leave it there. We can't just say, well, we should just leave it legal so that we can avoid the authoritarian draconian. Uh, enforcement of it. No, those are real human beings. And if we're going to be consistent in, in our philosophy and consistent that our rights are, are inherent in our humanity, uh, then we can't just leave it alone. We can't just say this is, <laughs> this is something we can't figure out. And so, you know, ultimately, my proposal is, is, um, you know, the free market, no matter which side of this debate you fall on, the free market is necessary to uh, to support the rights of women, and it's necessary to support the rights of the fetus. And really, when it comes down to it, if you want to end abortion, you have to be able to persuade that woman who's got an unplanned pregnancy, who's standing in her bathroom with a little abortion pill in her hand, you, you, need, to have, you need to be able to persuade her not to actually swallow the pill, mm-hmm. right? And that is not something, I mean, lessons from the drug war teach us that the state can't actually intervene in that process. So how do you do it, right? There's, um, and so that's where the free market comes into play. And looking at a lot of the, the data, what we find is that um, women, well, let me back up. What the, what the data shows is that when you have Republican administrations, the abortion rate goes up. And when you have Democratic administrations, the abortion rate goes down. That's, and, that's odd. That seems backwards. Um, yeah. Well, um, the, the going theory, now a lot of pro-choicers will use this data point to say, see, this is why we need welfare because, um, you know, if we give if we give women welfare, there will be fewer abortions. Mm. And I take that data point and I say, well, women who are receiving welfare are having their basic, their most basic needs met. So if we have a free market where um, women are able to pursue their interests and make a living for themselves, and you know, uh, provide for their own security and their own education and things like that. Um, then we're also creating an environment where her most basic needs are met. And so we could just as easily point to the free market, which um, has demonstrably raised the entire world out of abject poverty mm-hmm. and would continue to, to do that if it weren't for this stupid economic shutdown. Um, but the free market empowers women. And if it empowers women, they're more likely to make life-affirming choices. Mm. And so whether you're pro-choice or pro-life, the thing that we should be aiming for is the free market. And, you know, I see this uh, as far as the, the division between pro-choice and pro-life, at least on the libertarian level, let's, put, let's just put it there. Um, I see a, a natural division of labor. I see 
you know, there's one segment of the population who wants to prevent unwanted pregnancies, and then a segment of the population who wants to provide life-affirming options when unplanned pregnancies happen, because we're never going to get rid of unplanned pregnancies. Um, and so the big question is, is should those options include abortion? Well, suddenly, suddenly pro-choice libertarians and pro-life libertarians have a great deal of common ground because we don't believe in, in public funding for, uh, for abortion, for the abortion industry or any other industry for that matter. Um, we're both interested in innovation. Um, ultimately, I think the free market is, is pro-life in the sense that it uh, promotes life in, in all areas of life. And if we really truly left the market to compete as far as, um, you know, options in the cases of unwanted pregnancies, you might find that uh, the abortion industry just turns out to be a very expensive, dangerous alternative to uh, less expensive, more life-affirming choices. Um, so I think that the free market is a huge tool and advantage to pro-lifers. Um, and, you know, there is a conversation to be had about how a libertarian society would prohibit abortion, because I do think that would be an aspect of it. But as far as it stands now, like our common ground is the free market. That's it. Our common ground is uh, opposing the police state and, and an, and, and an authoritarian enforcement of, of laws. Um, we, we oppose tough on crime legislation, which does nothing for recidiv recidivism rates. I mean, we have so much common ground that that's where we should be focusing on right now. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, one of the first books I read when I was uh, introduced to this uh, ideology of libertarianism was Ron Paul's Liberty Defined. Mm -hmm. And he had 50 different issues uh, covered in that book, but the, the very first one was abortion. He did it mm -hmm. alphabetically, obviously. And um, uh, what he talks about was just uh, the cultural aspect. You know, mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't force anything from the legislative. You can't legislate morality. Yeah. Right. And so you talk about the free market and it definitely it has uh, it has its advantages, but just that culture, because because politics is downstream from culture. Right. And mm -hmm. so for anybody to actually solve this issue is, OK, well, let's 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 look at the culture that we have. Do we have a culture of freedom in this country? Well, I would say we don't have a culture of freedom. Right. So when you talk about giving more options, right, giving more education, giving more uh, have that person, you talked about the pill, the abortion pill, right? Leaving a person to make that choice on her own without having to force the issue, right? That comes mm -hmm. from, from culture and, and just giving options. And the options only exist when you have, uh, when you have free market, right? Yeah. So I, I, really, I really like that perspective because it does take in the compassion of, uh, of the mother or the expectant mother and right. the fetus, and uh, it, uh, it makes it an even playing ground for everyone there. Well, and I, th I think that, you know, the pro-life side has a tendency to sort of say, well, the way to solve this problem is, is just to make women want their pregnancies. And so we should go back to, you know, this 1950s view of men and, you know, men and women and that women should be homemakers and then they're going to want their babies. And it's like, mm, uh, I love my kids, but that's not, ser seriously, that's not how this works. <laughs> um, and so... You know, I think that if we can, if we can be mature enough to acknowledge the fact that unwanted pregnancies happen, they're not, they're not something that you can prevent. Um, I mean, just in terms of the, the wantedness factor, right? Um, then we can say, okay, what, what market needs are created by the fact that unwanted pregnancies are just a fact of life? And that changes that changes the perspective. Then we know how to respond to it rather than trying to fix the morality of, of women. If, I mean, as if that, that's just the ultimate problem. Well, thank you for your remarks on that. I want to direct the listeners to the, uh, the debate between you and Walter Block and also uh, the God Archie podcast where you had uh, in-depth conversation about this particular uh, issue. I thought that, like I said, I thought that your insights were, were very uh, well thought out. And uh, because it's such a divisive issue, 
that, you know, it takes more than just deciding one way or the other to, to really hash it all out. So. Yeah. Well, I, I want to say my debate with Walter Block was, was absolutely wonderful. And it was, it was an excellent experience. I mean, even from the crowd, it was, it was the most uh, relaxed and amicable debate on abortion you can possibly imagine. There were just, there wasn't, you know, a whole lot of tension in the room. We were actually having a conversation uh, that you don't hear happen between uh, or on this this discussion, so it's a it's an excellent debate, and I hope uh, hope your listen listeners will go watch it. Well, thank you for that, Terry. Before I let you go, is there any uh, last issue or thing that you might want to plug or, or, or talk about? Anything on your mind that we haven't discussed? <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot. But <laughs> yeah, there's there's always more. Um, yeah, no, just uh, definitely check out my website mirrorliberty.com. Um, you can sign up for my free, my free monthly newsletter. Um, that's actually one of the best ways to interact with me. Um, my monthly newsletter is um, usually just an extra article that's, uh, that's unpublished, an unpublished article every month. And um, I encourage all of my subscribers to, uh, to respond to those and ask questions. And so I interact with a lot of my, my readers uh, through my, my newsletter. And of course, that's where you're going to find all of my, my content, even my stuff from Libertarian Christian Institute eventually gets reposted there. Um, you can find my podcast there and you can find information about the Socratic seminars if you're interested in that. Perfect. Well, Carrie, I uh, appreciate the conversation. Okay, sounds great. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Yeah, I appreciate your time as well. Thank uh, you. Bye-bye now. Bye. I want to thank Carrie Baldwin for appearing on the Invictus Mind. Another thanks to all you listeners out there. Hopefully, this program will help some of you to think on a deeper level about the issues and ideas that are important in today's world. If you find value from this show, please share it with your friends and family. And please feel free to reach out to me via social media as I love engaging with different types of thinkers. That's it. Come back next week for another episode. Until then, keep growing. Stay unconquerable and live free.